The Senators play spoiler and end the Canucks winning streak at six games. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd, my co-host, as always, Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who you can also read covering the team at The Athletic. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. And Drancer, they pick up a point. Yes, it's true, by getting to overtime. But considering the competition, the stakes, the demands the imperative that they basically keep winning nonstop if they want to make the playoffs. That is an absolutely crushing defeat for the Vancouver Canucks last night against the Ottawa Senators. It wasn't good. And Adam Gaudet winning it and yes. then taunting the crowd. I mean, that was as Canucksy as it gets. It felt, Jamie. it felt like Canucks Mad Libs or something. You know what I mean? Like the, <laughs> the Canucks playoff hopes will be crushed by uh, the Ottawa Senators thanks to an Adam Gaudet shootout goal. It's like, yeah, okay, that sounds about right. I, I could see something like that happening. The Canucks playoff run was looking up until they encountered a team playing Michael Delzato and Travis Hamanick on their top pair, right? I mean, it's yeah. you can't you can't make this stuff up. You can't. Like if I'd made it up in advance, people would have laughed. They would have laughed at me. Well, especially it's not just that it was Adam Gaudet, right? But it was the whole circumstances and, and shout out to Kevin Woodley for uh, kind of elucidating all of this on Twitter. But, you know, he hadn't played since, what, 11 minutes left in the second period or something like that. <laughs> He'd barely been a factor in the game. He hadn't been a factor in Just the game. Pure DH. Yeah. yeah. And, and then the the assistant coach is like, hey, hey, I, I think it would be a good time to put him in. And he uses the move that Ian Clark helped him develop. The whole thing is just, Oh, I like, think he on. was twisting the knife. I think he was twisting the <laughs> knife, having a little bit of fun there. That's, that's fair. My, that's my personal view. That's fair. Um. But, you know, enjoy the moment, Adam, right? Like, enjoy the moment. I always liked Adam Gaudet as a player. I liked the way that he always worked. It hasn't really worked out for him in Ottawa, frankly. Uh, he's obviously been claimed off of waivers. I mean, you know, he hasn't quite developed the way everyone had hoped when he had a 40-point pace season on the last year of his entry-level deal in 2019-20. But that was a big moment for him. And he should enjoy it. I love that he did. I love that he twisted the knife. I'm not taking the Ian Clark commentary. <laughs> With full seriousness, though, right? Like, I think that was just, like, you know, making it a little bit more painful. And, you know, well done. I doff my cap to you. You successfully accomplished that. I think it succeeded, yeah. (laughs) He He successfully twisted the knife, no doubt about it. So here's the thing. The Canucks were pretty unlucky last night, right? They were. Mm -hmm. They hit that Tyler Myers post late. They controlled three-on-three overtime. I think it is outrageous that they didn't come out of that second period considering all the pressure they ladled upon the Ottawa Senators with more than a one goal lead I thought they were really good in stretches but there's two things here one is if you lean on your conversion rate right you are more subject to the ebbs and flows of puck luck right the Canucks have been riding this wave where everything they've shot has found the back of the net. And instead, yesterday, they're off by inches, right? Pedersen's missing the net instead of just blasting it by the goaltender. That's going to happen over an 82-game season. You're not going to be, you know, he's not a machine, no matter how much he might shoot like it sometimes, right? Eventually, you're going to be off by a degree. 
twice consecutively, you need to be able to find answers. You need to be able to do the sorts of things that the Canucks did a night earlier against the Dallas Stars in terms of that withering persistence, that willfulness that they use to score goals, the ability to break through, break out of your own end with uh, like cleanly and with speed and get going the other way. They struggled to do that against the Senators, and their finishing game was off just a bit. They end the night with like a 3.5% shooting clip at 5-on-5, five five, right? Not outrageously low. I mean, they still got a 5-on-5 five five goal, but you're going to bump into those games. You're not always going to be humming along at a 109 PDO the way that they had been all month entering last night's game. And when that happens, you need to have an answer. You need to be able to find the inability to control the game and protect a two-goal lead, right? Because actually, they were pretty fortunate for the first six, seven minutes. I didn't think they played great in building that 2-0 lead, uh, but they were opportunistic. They looked like the Canucks. Brock Besser, great shot. to uh, Brad Hunt with the great pass, two on the 2-0 goal. You know, they did what they they had to do. They get the, the shot from JT Miller, too. The power play stayed hot. So it's not that they had no finishing luck. It's just that it all came in the first five minutes, and then they went into cruise control. And here is the problem with that. They they put in, all told, by the end of the night, their worst five-on-five defensive performance, or tied for their worst five-on-five defensive performance of the year. The only one that's as bad was when they played the Kings on a back-to-back, coming back from the Omicron mm. pause. So they hadn't played in 12 games. They play Anaheim one night, win, play L.A. the other, and that was the first loss of the Boudreaux era, right? Like a month into his tenure, right? But, it, like, they hadn't played in 12 days, you know? So, so you understand why their legs weren't there that night. To, to mimic that level of defensive permissiveness against an Ottawa Senators team that just a night earlier had generated 14 total shots against the Seattle Kraken. With your season on the line, that's tough for me to swallow, right? Like, at the end of the day, the Canucks were good enough to win that game. They were unfortunate. But they also lived dangerously and did it to themselves because they couldn't lock down a pretty feeble opponent, let's be honest, let's be honest, and played one of, turned in one of their worst defensive performances of the year with their season on the line. That's got to result in at least some reflection from anyone who's been really buying into the idea that this team under Boudreaux is a contender now. Well, and it was the, the shape of the game was really interesting because I think back to remember when Tampa came here and they were on the second half of a back to back and they kind of dominated the what the first 10 or 15 minutes of the game, built a lead and then just hung on for the rest of the game. And because they're such a strong defensive outfit, they were able to do that without a lot of trouble from the Canucks. This wasn't that right. I mean, as you said, the Canucks first period that was probably their worst period of the game even though they ended up with a two-goal lead after that right and it wasn't as if they just completely lost their legs because they generated lots of offensive opportunities right I mean per natural stat trick they actually had 20 high danger chances at five on five and I haven't looked back through all of the game logs but you know, that, that's probably one of the better marks of the season for the Canucks. The problem is they allowed the Ottawa Senators 17. So they had at least some energy, you know what I mean? And especially in that second oh, yeah. period. It is their best. It is their most generated of the season. Yeah. So there you go. It's it just it, five on five anyway. And, yeah. But it, so it's not as if they completely lost their legs and weren't able to do anything. It's just that all of the energy seemed to end up producing offensive chances 
And the, you know, the the counterweight to that was they were really unable to slow down Ottawa as well. So it, it almost would have been more understandable if it had just been pure fatigue, right? And they got up 2 nothing, and then they were just kind of unable to get out of their own zone uh, for the next two periods. But that really wasn't how it developed. And, you know, as you said... But, but sorry, but go sorry, ahead. but sorry. I just want to litigate one comment that you said. Sure. Unable to slow down Ottawa. Yeah, like, let, we we can't we can't continue the radio show without letting that commentary <laughs> marinate, right? I thought this was I've been I've been told at length, you know, that this team's a 110 point pace under Boudreaux, just a couple moves away from being a contender. They couldn't slow down Ottawa with their season on the line. Come yeah. on, especially Come when you're, on, especially when you're up to nothing after the first period. Right, like right. you, you are in, you are in the driver's seat in a big, big way against an Ottawa team that has nothing to play for. That's on the end of a road trip, right? That's, you know, could very easily have one eye on, hey man, getting on the plane and going home after this game, and you weren't able to make it count. You weren't able to really finish the job, and and you let them back into the game. I completely agree with you. That's really, the really twenty sixth best. They're the twenty sixth best offense in the in the NHL. They have fewer goals scored than New York, the New York Islanders, and Detroit. They couldn't slow down Ottawa. Come on, it's tough. It's a really, really tough look. And you know, you made the comparison to the Dallas game, right? And all of the things they they did well in that game. And I remember after the Dallas game when Boudreaux was talking to the media, and I believe it was our own Dan Riccio who kind of asked him to kind of specifically name some of the things that Boudreaux means when he gives the blanket statement, right? The team was playing the right way. And he talked about, you know, puck management, details in the defensive zone, short shifts, all of those. It seemed like so many of those things were either completely absent or very, very much curtailed last night against the Senators. And that is something that's kind of, to me, a classic symptom of a tired team, right? When when you are fatigued, your attention starts to dip a little bit, right? You start to take the easy route out sometimes, you cut corners, all of those things. But I'm also not sure how much of that, all of that was fatigue versus just the team can't consistently play a tight enough defensive game, even against a team like the Ottawa Senators, who also happen to be on a back-to-back, right? I think it's hard to it's hard to separate just the idea of, oh, you know, they were sloppy because they were tired versus this is kind of just a sloppy team pretty consistently. So I want to read a text. You above anyone, Drancer. Sample size matters. Having lost against a bad team is tough, especially this point in the season and where the Canucks are at. But it isn't, a, it isn't self-reflection time for the Canucks. They've exceeded expectations, and losing one game isn't going to define them. Sample size, Tiny Drancer, and this is from Tiny Tim. <laughs> now here. Now here. It's not about the loss, right? I don't actually... If the Canucks looked the way they did for those 10 minutes of the second period and still lost, I wouldn't be singing this tune, Right? It's that they surrendered. They they turned in their worst defensive performance of five on five of the year, mm-hmm. of the year, and you could kind of see it coming in some of their wins over the course of the past month. You know, it's not like these wins have all looked like Dallas, right? That was the point that I was making and drilling home yesterday was if they can play like they did against Dallas and sustain that, then you've got a chance to overcome. You know, what I called the slings and arrows of outrageous hockey misfortune. You have to be able to control games. This team, when they win, they've been winning on shooting efficiency, goaltending, and special teams. Their special teams were fine yesterday. Their goaltending was fine yesterday. Their their shooting efficiency abandoned them. And 
they weren't able to hold a two-goal lead going into the second or a one-goal lead going into the first against a bad team because they turned in one of their worst defensive performances of the year. It's not about the loss. It's not about the result. It's about how that outcome in a crucial moment points to all of the issues that we've been pointing out despite the club's run of wins, right? Which has been, does this team have the structure they can fall back on? Can they control games well enough? The answer has usually been no, and it cost them a huge point. A point they could not afford to drop against a really bad opponent last night. That's what's so galling about it. That's why it's reflection time. 650 650, by the way, is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative is at Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. I wanted to read this one from Jason the Killer Goalie. He says, The Canucks were unlucky. What about all the posts that Ottawa hit or all the power plays the Canucks got versus the few that the Senators got? Uh, the Canucks aren't a bunch of angels. And that's completely accurate. Oh, I'm. I'm not saying no, they are. No, exactly. And I think the point is that even though the Canucks generated so much offense, this was still essentially a coin flip game, you know, as evidenced by the fact that it went to the ultimate coin flip of the shootout because the Canucks couldn't do the job defensively, right? So it, when you say the Canucks were unlucky, I think that's accurate because they could have easily scored more goals, but it doesn't mean, oh, they absolutely deserve to win this game. You know, Ottawa was right there with them, again, despite all of the good work that uh, the Canucks did at the offensive end of the ice. So I agree with Jason the Killer Goalie. This is not trying to absolve the Canucks uh, at all, right? Like, they didn't play well, well I, enough. I'm I'm here to impunge their defensive yeah, play, Yeah, yeah. in fact, right? I mean, I, I think the Canucks probably deserved more goals, right? Like, I think the, the, the part of the game where they were really unlucky was that 10 minutes in the second period where they turned it up, and it was heart-pounding hockey, right? Like, really fun to watch. And the atmosphere at Rogers Arena just added to it. Like, shout out to that Larshiders Mania section. That was incredible. I love it. Um, I loved the feel of it, even though I wasn't in the building. On television, it translated. Like, you could feel the atmosphere. It felt like it impacted the flow of play because the game was frenetic, exciting, edge-of-your-seat stuff. Where the Canucks were unfortunate was to, you know, they, they give up that 2-1 goal. It's a deflection by Alex Formanton. And then they completely take over the game for 12 minutes and play some of their best hockey of the season. To not have scored in that 12-minute stretch was deeply unfortunate, right? It was like Senators players were constantly pinned for 90, 90 seconds. That was the moment where I thought the Canucks were unfortunate. Thereafter, it felt like they were too casual. Like I, I wouldn't defend any other part of the Canucks game. I'm just saying... To go into the third period only up one goal was deeply unlucky. And unlucky in a way that this team just hasn't been over a run of months in which basically everything is broken in their, broken in their favor. I will say they had stretches, especially after they tied it in the third period, where they were clearly the better team as well. It, it wasn't the same kind of onslaught where they were just dominant as that stretch in the second period. And I think even in that stretch in the third period, they were still giving up opportunities on the counterattack. But they did make a really legitimate push to try to end it even before overtime, I thought, in that game. So it wasn't just the second period, but they couldn't sustain it for, you know, the entire back half of the game, for example, right? There were still lulls. And obviously, you know, they go down and they give up two goals uh, in the third period before they really light that fire uh, under themselves. A couple texts came in about the uh, the defensive performance specifically from the players 
on the blue line. Marcus and Gibson says, doesn't it feel like the book is out on the Canucks? A strong, quick forecheck can cause absolute chaos chaos in their own end. That's from Marcus and Gibson's. Uh, and then another one says, uh, they're a whole five defensemen away from being a contender. Any Ottawa forward with speed burned our D for Menton was the standout. He absolutely was the standout, but again, it's continuing a theme we've seen over and over again with this team that Fast teams can give them absolute fits unless they are playing at the absolute peak of their abilities, and we just haven't seen that consistently enough. So the fact that even Ottawa, because they have that speed element, was able to really burn them, it's not that surprising. It's been a major issue for this team all year. At least one player, sure. Right. Formington Formington drove them nuts, and not a lot of teams have a skater like Formington, right? Uh, Formington's a, a long-standing favorite of mine because I always thought that the offense would, would come from him. It's still not quite there, although he was scintillating, obviously, last night. Probably should have had a hat trick, if not for a post that he hit. But, yeah, I mean, those are the types of players, those are the types of teams that we've seen repeatedly give the Canucks fits. The problem is, or not the problem, the, the benefit for Vancouver is that you know, there's not a lot of teams with that, like, Pittsburgh level of team speed, right? The Buffalo level of team speed. There's, like, seven or eight teams that, you know, play the Canucks and the Canucks look a little bit lost sometimes. But there's only a few of them, right? There's only a few teams that can really give the Canucks fits, particularly with the way Boudreaux's had them play. Um, Brendan in Nanaimo, by the way, is completely incredulous. Worst defensive performance of the year. He disagrees with that. Ottawa's a fast team. They played, they're not that fast, by the way. They have Formington. They played good last night. Calm down. Formington had two goals using his speed, and the Canucks didn't play great defensively. They also just won six in a row with the season on the line. Demko was a shell of himself um, being sick, although Boudreaux denied that. Uh, They're clearly a playoff team under Bruce. Well, they're under Bruce right now, and they're in tough to make the playoffs. And yeah, the first 25 games is a huge part of that story. No question. The decisive part of that story, without doubt. But, you know, they had a chance last night to stay in the race. And they had a lead going into the third period, and they had a lead after 20 minutes, and they turned in quantitatively, right? I'm not, I'm, I'm basing this partly on the numbers. Quantitatively, tied for their worst defensive performance by expected goals allowed um, last night. Like, that, that's just what happened. That's just what happened. And it's galling. I, I think it has to be galling. It's a massive missed opportunity for a group that has worked really hard to get to this point and then benefited from an outrageous run of good luck over the course of the past six games, then peak with that Dallas Stars performance, one of their best of the year, to then rebound into this, to rebound into a a performance where Alex Formanton torments you offensively? Like, come on. That's tough. That's really tough. It it was a really tough game, and I'm sure one that's difficult for everybody internally to swallow, even though the atmosphere was great, and even though, you know, you got to give everybody involved a ton of props for even getting to this point. Well, and Boudreaux was obviously very pretty frustrated after the game last night when he was talking to the media you know dropped the accidental uh, f-bomb <laughs> talking about the Demko sickness issue and whether or not, whether he was uh, or was not sick so yeah absolutely the team is going to be very very frustrated of course that they didn't get the job done there and, and I will also say it's not necessarily a one-off this type of performance it's not a one-off right you can point back to the games on the homestand against Buffalo and Detroit where they weren't able to get the job done uh, in a big situation against lesser opponents, right? You could even look back to games against Anaheim under Bruce Boudreaux this year, particularly the one where they got blown out at home. So it's it's if this was just a one-off and a, wow, where did that come type of performance, I think it would be a much different story. 
uh, than what than what we're talking about right now when it is part of a pattern that's existed even after Bruce Boudreaux has taken over. I wanted to get to a couple texts here as well. This one unsigned. It says, can you please explain to me why Nick Patan shot fourth with the season on the line? And then Jay from Delta says, hey, guys, I didn't really like to see Patan shoot in the shootout and Pod Colson not being uh, played at three on three overtime. What are your thoughts? And sorry, sorry, don't ignore Burke from Kamloops who compared Pod Colson not playing in OT in the shootout to Shades of Luongo and the Heritage Classic. We can't ignore that. That's great. Great. Amazing. I love that. Amazing. Let's go. Amazing. So, yeah, that was one of the biggest talking points, certainly on the postgame show and after the game that I saw from Canucks fans. And I think there's uh, – let's deal with them separately. Not using Pod Coles in an overtime, having a guy like Sheldon Dries out there, I mean, I don't understand it at all. And especially because – it's not as if Pod Colson is playing sheltered bottom six minutes for you, but showing all this offensive upside and you don't really trust him in a big moment. I mean, he was out there in the final minute of the game, right? There's obviously an element of trust that he has earned from the coaching staff and with the chemistry he's showing with guys like Miller and Garland right now, with the skill and the upside that he does have, I just think you've got to find a way to get him out there, especially when you're turning to you know AHL call-ups over him. I, I don't really... I don't understand that one from a coaching perspective. I'll be honest. Nick Patan, I checked his AHL player page today, and it looks like he's one for 11 in his career on shootout attempts at the American League level. That's 9%. Not not great. No. No, he shouldn't have shot. Like, I I just, he shouldn't have shot. Quinn Hughes or Vasily Podkolzin. I, I mean, those were the options. In, in my view, you have to go with one of those guys in, in that position. Now, it's not on Boudreaux that he doesn't have better options, right? Uh, three on three, the Canucks clearly have a very particular approach that they want to take to playing three on three hockey, right? They, can, they dominated puck possession. I'm not going to criticize having Sheldon Dries out there for whatever, 45 seconds, considering that they clearly wanted to play a very disciplined style. Boudreaux obviously trusts a guy with, you know, NHL miles and a ton of AHL miles to play that really disciplined puck possession style. Don't take any chances. Let's just dominate possession and and wait for our, you know, opportunity, right? I I mean, that was clearly the approach at 3-on-3 overtime. I thought it worked. You could see the game plan work. Even though the Canucks didn't score, didn't convert on uh, on the one really good chance they had, um, you know, I don't think you can look at how three on three played out and question the approach, right? So I, yeah, I, don't, well, I don't have a huge issue with Sheldon know, though, Dries they, over Vasily Podkolzin. Like, I, I hear you that they they controlled the puck all over time, right? But I just still think you're leaving you're leaving potential ways to win on the bench when you're not putting Podkolzin out there, right? Like I, like I get it. Look, the the way they performed in three on three in the 45 seconds that Sheldon Dries played, you're right. That's not the reason they lost the game, obviously, right? Like they shouldn't have been in that position. They should have found a way to win it in regulation, and then it wouldn't have been an issue. But as much as you want to play that, you know, really disciplined, don't make any mistakes style, you have to get one of your best forwards out there as well in Vasily Podkolzin. You have to find a way to use him. And then to your point in the in the shootout, yeah, Patan 
based on his AHL stats, and we do have Luke uh, in Vancouver. This is a reference to the People Show yesterday. I'm wondering if we have the latest Nick Patan stats. Uh, and as you said, one in eleven uh, in the AHL in his shootout career. Not exactly sparkling. So look, I, I hear what you're saying about Pod Colson and three on three. Not exactly sparkling. <laughs> My goodness, Jamie. it's called Holy understatement. Cow. It's called understatement, no, Dreads. I, that's I, I, we can't leave that hanging. You know, that's like it's, uh, like. It, it's, <laughs> It's a literary device, understatement for yeah. effect. Sure, sure. Like William Shakespeare wrote some decent stuff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Nine percent on eleven attempts in the shootouts. Not not exactly sparkling. <laughs> anyway, the fact is is that yeah. I mean, I, look, I get the Patan second guessing. I agree with that. Um, the the Sheldon Dries thing. I, I think you know I, I understand why they were trying it, to play a certain yeah. way, and it worked. And it worked. If it hadn't worked, it would be one thing, but it did work. They, you know, manufactured a fair bit over five minutes. Uh, they certainly had the two best chances in overtime, and they surrendered abs- – like, there was no chance Ottawa ever had – Ottawa never had a look to win the game in overtime. So, you know, I can't really fault Boudreaux for his approach there, but I do think Pod Colson or Quinn Hughes sitting on the bench while – uh, Nick Patan goes in the shootout, considering his lack of success in, in that skills competition, even at an American League level that he dominates and is like a point per game plus player. Uh, that that one do, doesn't make that's a huge head scratcher for me. And it should be noted also uh, a huge situation where they miss Bo Horvat there, right? I mean, you go Besser, Miller, Pedersen, Garland, your first four shooters, and then you kind of have a hard decision, right? Because it's you know Pod Colson doesn't have experience doing it in the NHL. Quinn Hughes is a defenseman. Bo Horvat would be your first choice guy in the shootout, even before any of those other four, uh, in all likelihood. So not having Bo Horvat there does really hurt. It really limits the options available to Bruce Boudreaux. But again, having said that, and this text comes in, uh, you know, Canuck should have won the game in the second period, put the puck in the net. They probably shouldn't have been been in that situation in the first place to have missed Bo Horvat. But that's a situation where they really, really would have loved to be able to tap the shoulder of their captain and go out and try to get a goal in the shootout oh, for them. No kidding. No kidding. And and on the power play. I mean, yeah. it's a very different game if you have Bo Horvat. No question. No question. But it's also a very different game for Ottawa if you have if they have Thomas Shabbat. Like, I know that Vancouver is getting a little lean in terms of their forward options, which is one of the reasons why I'm going to cut – Boudreaux a fair bit of slack on some of the player deployment things that fans are being critical on today, particularly because Boudreaux's gotten, you know, Boudreaux's made a ton of decisions or done a ton of things that I would have never assumed would work, and they did. So I've, I'm giving him, you know, if you can if you can put Mott, Lamico, and Highmore together and get like a <laughs> 75% goal differential out of them for over, over a run of 25 games, like I'm going to probably cut you a lot of slack on player deployment things. I'm just going to say, hey, this guy knows some things. Yeah. This guy knows some things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let it ride. Uh, but, you know, the Patan in the shootout, that, one, that one's maybe a little different for me. Um, but I also am not going to hear the injury excuse when the Ottawa Senators were without a defenseman that they play 28 minutes a night and, and rode with a delzato Hamonic top pair as a result, right? I mean, the Canucks had to win that game. They had to have those two points, and they just didn't play well enough as a team defensively to do it. And, and that's just got to be disappointing. Jay from Delta texts in, is there still a chance we can make the playoffs? We will uh, give you an updated playoff picture in the Western Conference, Jay and everyone else, when we come back. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. 
And if you like the show, please do leave us a five-star rating and review as well. We'll dive into the playoff picture, uh, plus some of the bright spots from the Canucks' performance last night. Some of the forwards had pretty impressive games, even in the loss. What does that mean for the offseason and beyond? All of that coming up next. It's the Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance here with you for another half hour, a day after the Canucks lose 4-3 in the shootout against the Ottawa Senators, thanks to none other than Adam Gaudet. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. And uh, I read the text from Jay from Delta before we went to break. He says, is there still a chance we can make the playoffs? And, of course, mathematically, still very much alive. But we all know the playoff chances, even with the point gained, took a major, major hit last night. And not just because of the fact that the Canucks couldn't pick up two points against Ottawa. It's also because of what L.A. did, uh, which is win 2-1 in regulation against Anaheim. So now... With their with their goalie stealing the game. Yeah, let's, exactly. Let's, and I want, let's make sure to yeah. note, let's make sure to note that the Kings goaltending-induced struggles uh, bounced back. King yeah. was... In, or sorry, King. Quick was incredible for L.A. They kind of stole that win from Anaheim. And that's... That's very notable because, as as you have pointed out, a lot of the Kings' struggles have been related to their goaltending. So if Quick all of a sudden finds his form here and provides rock-solid goaltending, at this point, you know, all of the discussion yesterday was about how the Canucks control their own destiny, right? If they win out and beat the Kings, they can make it in. That's no longer the case because of the results last night. So you need L.A. to start dropping games if you're going to catch them uh, for third in the Pacific. And, you know, obviously, the better Quick plays the less likely that becomes against L.A.'s very soft schedule. So you're five points behind L.A. with a game in hand. They've played 78. The Canucks have played 77. Also crucial is that with that regulation win against Anaheim, L.A. moves ahead of the Canucks in the regulation win tiebreaker. They have 32. The Canucks still stuck on 31. You're also tied with Vegas in points. Both have 87 points through 77 games. And looking at the schedule tonight... The Dallas Stars play the Edmonton Oilers. Dallas is at 91 points with a game in hand, which they will make up tonight. So, hey, if, if Dal- and you do still have the regulation win tiebreaker over Dallas as well. So if Dallas can't get a point tonight, uh, you would be four points back with the same number of games played as the Dallas Stars. And, you know, that math, when you're starting to get into the four and five games left, uh, you know, realm Drance is is daunting enough. It's really hard to make up any significant number of points over that small a sample of games. That's tough. But the thing that makes it even more difficult from my perspective is, you know, the Canucks have to go play Minnesota and Calgary now. That's an extremely, extremely hard. I know it's not back-to-back on back-to-back nights, but that's an extremely hard set of two games on the road against two of the better teams in the Western Conference. So the math, even before you start to consider the specific teams involved and who they're all playing, is really daunting. And the fact that the Canucks have these two opponents coming up makes it all the more challenging for them. The Western Conference playoff race is looking settled. That's the fact of the matter. I think we know who the eight teams who are going to make the playoffs are, and Vancouver's probably not one of them. It would be a major Overwhelmingly likely. It would be a major upset from this point for either Vegas or the Canucks to catch Dallas, L.A., or Nashville at this point, right? 100%. It would be a major upset. Extremely, 
Oh, it would be, it's extremely, it's improbable. It's, it's, you know, it's not just unlikely, it's improbable. And so the way that Dom Lucidio, oh, are you ready with the bell, Faber? <laughs> I want to give you an opportunity. Are you ready with the bell? The way Dom Lucidio's model over at The Athletic breaks it down is like this, right? The Dallas Stars at this point are 93% likely to make the playoffs. The Nashville Predators are 92% likely to make the playoffs. And the LA Kings are 90% likely to make the playoffs. So you take that 10, right? 90, 100 minus 90 is, is 10, right? Mm-hmm. 100 minus 92 is 8. 100 minus 93 is uh, 7. Put that together, you've got a 25% chance in total, like a 25% playoff chance in total. Um, you know, out of, out of 400, not really out of just, it's not just one in four, but you've got that sort of 25% shot of a team upsetting the apple cart in, in some respect. And the way that Dom's model doles that out is it gives 19% to Vegas and 6% to Vancouver. That's down almost eight points from where they were at yesterday, which was 14% prior to the regulation uh, or sorry, prior to them losing uh, a point. In, in the shootout to Ottawa and also Nashville and um, the LA Kings taking care of business. So 6%, 6% chance, but far less likely than Vegas based on the overall quality of the two teams. And so, you know, there's a shot, but a lot has to go Vancouver's way. They're running out of outs here, yes. right? You're well, running out of outs and paths. Yeah, I was going to uh, I was going to bring up my my baseball game state analogy that we've been following right, this go, week, right? Go. So we're at the Canucks are at six percent. You said, yeah. Okay, so working from the framework we started on Monday, which was you're down, and, and again, shout out to uh, the listener, I believe it was Trev on Twitter uh, that gave the that pointed us in the direction of this tool. Uh, that's, you know, the, the Canucks at the beginning of the week were the equivalent of a baseball team down to going into the bottom of the ninth, right? Now the closest I could find it is you have a runner on third, you're still down two, but you have two outs. And teams in that situation uh, win about 5.5% of the time. So right around the 6% odds that the Canucks are. And that feels really right because, hey, you got that runner on third, you might find a way to get them home. But you could very easily run out of outs as well. And that's the biggest problem. Yep. The Canucks might finish, you know, a point or two out of the playoffs at this point. But they're probably going to run out of runway to do that final little bit of work and catch the teams in front of them. So I think the the running out of outs analogy is very apt in this situation. Yeah. And so, yeah, they're, they're out of outs and it's going to be very difficult. The other thing to the other way to think about this is to look at your maximum number of points gained, right? The Canucks now have a maximum number of points at at 97, right? So they're stuck at sort of a 97 if everything goes well. If they run the table, the Canucks could still get to 97 points on the season. Well, in order to get to 97 points um and eliminate the Canucks at this point, uh you know, LA can drop 3, right? They can drop 3 points down the stretch here. Uh, the Nashville Predators uh, can drop, um, you know, <laughs> excuse me, they can drop six, right? The the Dallas Stars, they can also drop um, six. So, you know, those teams have margin, right? A, a loss by the Dallas Stars to Edmonton tonight, for example, still leaves them with a fair bit of wiggle with which to eliminate the Canucks, even if everything goes right for Vancouver, even if they run the table. So that's... That's sort of how you get to a, an area where it's super improbable, even though when you look at the standings, it's like, hey, they're only five back of L.A. With, with, uh, with a game in hand. Like, hey, that seems doable. It's not. 
It's not really as simple as that. It's going to be extremely difficult. A lot has to break this team's way in order for them to get into the playoff mix. They're very probably not going to do it. Um, But, you know, good for them for getting to this point. Honestly, I didn't see this coming by any means. I'll own that uh, for sure. I didn't think they'd... I didn't think they'd play meaningful games this late into the season. They have. They've had a lot of things break their way on on their path to that, including playing some really exciting hockey under Bruce Boudreaux. So tip your cap to the group, but overwhelmingly likely that this falls short at this point. Yeah, and Jay from Delta texted in, what would be the best-case scenario for the Canucks to get in the playoffs? And, I mean, obviously it's them winning basically all the rest of their games, but also... You need L.A., you need Dallas, or preferably both of them to start dropping games for the wheels to start falling off of at least one, if not both, of those two teams. That that has a huge amount to do with it because, as you said, they can just play middling hockey and probably be just fine at this point no matter what the Canucks do. So you need things to go really, really poorly, really, really quickly for Dallas and L.A. And again, Dallas plays Edmonton on the road, first of a back-to-back against the Alberta team. So, hey, if you're looking for you know a little bit of a silver lining or a, a light at the end of the tunnel or what have you, that could be the start of it. But yeah, you need things to go very, very poorly uh, for one or preferably both of those teams. Well, and let's also not forget, like, you know, Dallas could definitely blow those games. Dallas yep. isn't very good. Yeah. You know, like, we, we also have to remember that the teams Vancouver is chasing are limited to and being among them, being their peer, is not good enough, right? And that sort of brings us to to a point that I, I think is really important. Like, as we break down Vancouver's performance last night, like, I loved what we saw out of Oliver ekman Larson last night. I thought he was immense for the Canucks. I also thought the Dermott-Brad Dermot, uh, Hunt pair played really well and contributed materially and directly to some of Vancouver's offense. I mean, Brad Hunt teamed up with Brock Besser on the Canucks' second goal, Dermott teamed up with Brock Besser on the Canucks' third goal. I thought they played pretty decently, but I do think we're coming up against the limits of what this blue line is capable of. And the Ottawa forecheck gave them a lot of trouble. Uh, We certainly didn't see them cut through Ottawa's defensive layers the way they had on Monday uh, so successfully against Dallas. I thought this team got stuck in the mud a little bit too often, didn't generate enough off the rush, which has sort of been the story of the season. I felt like last night when they had Oliver Ekman, Larson, and Myers on, right? They outshot the Senators 12 to 7, one goal for, one goal against. That's at five on five. Without Myers and Oliver Ekman, Larson, in all the other minutes, they were outscored by two. They were outscored by two, and they were outshot 15 to 20 by a Senators team that's not much to write home about. Um, that to me drives through, drives home, you know, one of the things we've been talking about all season, which is do the Canucks have enough on the back end? For me, Last night, once again, reemphasized that no, no, there's a lot of work that's going to need to happen to make this blue line group better, faster, cheaper all at once. That's a really tough trick to pull off. And as we get toward the end of the season, you know, considering how Myers and Ekman Larson have performed to the 95th percentile of what we could have reasonably expected this season, considering that Quinn Hughes is going to smash all kinds of records for Canucks defensemen this year. Um, considering those three facts and the fact that this blue line still wasn't close to good enough, like that's to me a big red flashing warning light suggesting that if this team's going to get better in the near term or in the long term, frankly, in the long term, uh, a significant reconstruction project awaits new management on the back end. And the, looking at the blue line, and 
yeah, Dermott scores the big goal to tie the game up. Hunt has the assist to Besser. They're playing well in their role, as you mentioned, OEL and Myers as well. But it does feel like outside of Quinn Hughes, everyone else involved in the blue line can play an important role helping an NHL team win, but they're all probably at being asked to do a little bit too much right now, right? Like they all have a role on an NHL team. It's just maybe they're being asked to exceed what, you know, their level of responsibility should be in an ideal situation. So it's it, it creates an interesting dilemma because you can look at any, basically any other piece, again, beyond Quinn Hughes, who's the obvious untouchable star of the group, and kind of rationalize keeping them around, but you also know you have to make significant improvements and additions, and that's going to mean moving certain one of those guys out. But I don't look at any of those players and say, oh man, they can't help you, they need to go, they're just giving you brutal minutes right now, it's just they're being asked to do a little bit too much, and it's going to be really, really important to start restructuring that blue line and trying to get better performances out of it as a group uh, this summer. And Marks and Gibson's text in, Brad Hunt at league minimum is an asset on this back end with so much money tied up in Myers and OEL and Pullman to some degree. His value deal can help bridge this D group to better days. That's from Marcus and Gibson's. And again, Brad Hunt, I really like him as a player and what he's doing, but you probably want to be your seventh defenseman rather than playing regular minutes like he is for the Canucks at this point, right? And that kind of proves my point of, or, or goes to what I'm saying about good players in a certain role, but maybe just being asked to play a little bit too big of a role for the Canucks at this point. Uh, 650-650 yeah. 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. I did want to touch on a couple of the forward performances we saw last night as well, uh, Drancer, because two players in particular, and I know, you know, it's a, it's after a loss and everyone's disappointed, and now I'm going to talk about players who I thought played well, and that's not always popular, but... I thought Vasily Podkolzin played really, really well again, and I thought Brock Besser looked excellent as well in his second game back from an injury. And I know we touched on the Podkolzin three-on-three decision and shootout decision a little bit, but you look at what he's done recently in this kind of top six audition that he's had, playing with JT Miller, playing with Connor Garland last night as well, and all of a sudden, you know, he starts to kind of look like, I don't know if a top six lock for next year is too strong, but if he's able to sustain anything close to this level, he's absolutely going to feature into his into your top six. And I also start to wonder, for so long we've we've constructed this untouchable tier on the Canucks of Demko, Pedersen, and Hughes. You know, at this point, is it start is it time to start including Vasily Podkolzin in that group of untouchable players, or at least something very, very close to untouchable players on the Canucks roster? I think so. I think so. And and if you look through some of the trade tier stuff that we've done over at the athletic over the course of the past few months, like he was there before the trade deadline for us. Um, but I think you're seeing in real time, a young player mature in this league to the point where heavy hockey, like he just skates around the ice playing this heavy hockey in these meaningful games in this wild atmosphere at Rogers arena last night. And it's impossible not to dream on him being exactly the type of guy who can elevate his game when the going gets tough late in the year and into the playoffs, right? I mean, he just looks like heavy hockey personified, filled with, you know, a, a ruthless ill intent. He even, he even drew a jerk puck penalty last night, right? <laughs> he put the Canucks... He put the Canucks and the Sens both at four on four because of his engagement with Kachuk. He risked getting a double minor, but that was rescinded quite rightly. Um, you know, all of a sudden Kachuk is bleeding and the team that's chasing the lead gets this open ice to make a play. And they do, right? They get the Dermot game time goal off of a fracas that Pod Colson was in the middle of 
Love everything about it. In fact, watching Pod Colson take to, learn, embrace, begin to personify what heavy hockey looks like uh, is probably one of the things that I've most enjoyed watching this team play over the course of the past two, three weeks. But Pod Colson's development, as you said, over the past two, three weeks, but really from the start of the year to this point, it might be the kind of most uncomplicatedly positive development of the whole season for the Canucks, right? Because even, you know, I look at, this, at, at the level Elias Pettersson is at right now, and I feel really good about it and what it means for his game and for the Canucks. But it started with the first half of the season causing the team all sorts of fits and causing fans all sorts of fits. Even a player like JT Miller in the career years he's having, it's not this kind of uncomplicated celebration because it also leads you into this dilemma of whether you give him a big contract, do you explore trading him, all of that, right? With Pod Colson, you know, there's no, yeah, but with this right it's just holy cow this guy is developing way ahead of schedule and he looks fantastic right now and the other thing about it you know you're pointing to the heavy hockey stuff and we had a bunch of people text in earlier pointing out the same thing just what a bull he looks like on the ice right now but what's impressing me is he's doing that while also showing more of his skill at the same time right like it's not like he's okay you know what i gotta put aside uh, trying to make plays and trying to score goals because i'm gonna learn to play this really heavy imposing style of hockey he's doing both at the same time <laughs> he's rapidly improving both at the same time which doesn't strike me as an easy thing to do for a young player at the nhl level yeah no question and and the fact that he's on the entry level deal for next year and the year after you know this is a, a real Huge. boon particularly particularly if he can continue to complement skill players while you know not holding them back offensively and doing some of the yeoman's work that that you know a miller or a Patterson or a horvat is going to need on a regular basis to succeed um the other player i wanted to spotlight really quickly and i know you brought up besser who played Excellent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, he was fantastic. But for me, Connor Garland was their best forward last night. Not not by a slim margin. Draws the penalty that results in the JT Miller goal early. Um, just so good with the puck all night long. Uh, such a pass, such a thorn in the Ottawa Senators' side. And when the Canucks really turned up and started playing, you know, puck possession clinic hockey in the second, uh, I felt like Garland was in the middle of it all night. Uh, that to me. That, to me, was a really strong showing. And, and I do wonder if Garland's done enough to show, you know, a management group that didn't acquire him and didn't sign him to the, to the contract that he's inked to currently, that he's capable of helping the team when the temperature turns up, when the game is hard um, at this time of year. I hope that he's done enough to, to prove that. For me, he's been one of Vancouver's best forwards this season. Like, for me, he's on the Pedersen-Miller tier. Uh, that's sort of my list of the three Canuck, best Canucks forwards this season when you look at overall five-on-five impact. I know Horvat's had the 30-goal season, and, and, and I mean, to me, Horvat's a crucial linchpin of this team. I'm not docking him here. I'm just saying, in terms of what he's done with his five-on-five production, he's been a fringe elite contributor, a no-doubter first-line uh, scorer uh, in terms of his five-on-five impact. Uh, Garland's season is going down, is going to be very deeply misunderstood, I fear. I don't know that he's going to have a ton of trade value considering his impact. And I do think this is one where the Canucks have to proceed with immense caution, uh, significant caution, because Garland is a crucial part of this team going forward in my book. And yet I wonder if he's among the names we may see dangled once we get into the offseason as Vancouver's new management group looks to put their stamp on the team and clear out cap space. And with Garland, you got to think it's evolved to a point where it's not – 
the team isn't looking at it as, oh, man, we have to get out from under this contract, right? Like He's clearly a player that can help you in your top six, be a legitimate top six player, help you win games. Now, are they still in a position where they're going to listen to offers on him? And if they get the right offer, they're willing to make a deal? Yeah, of course. That wouldn't surprise me at all. But it's not as if it's a disappointment if you have to bring him back, right? Oh, man, we couldn't find a way to get out of Connor Garland's deal. No, you have a really good player on a pretty decent deal, then, that you're bringing back. And again, explore trading, I'm sure, if you get the right value, right? Most players are, are tradable. If you're getting the right kind of value back and you think it makes your team better, but it's certainly not, to my eyes anyways, a problem that needs to be solved, right? If, if Connor Garland comes back on your team next year, you feel really good about it, I think, because you know what a productive player he can be. And the last guy I did want to talk about was, as you said, Brock Besser. And he, he scores the 2 nothing goal. Great finish off the nice pass from Brad Hunt. Sets up Travis Dermott for the game-tying goal in the third period. I thought overall he he's looked kind of rejuvenated a little bit in these first two games back from his injury. Looks like he's maybe had an extra step in terms of speed. And I don't want to overreact to, you know, what at this point is a very small sample size, and we'll see how it continues for the final five games of the season for Besser. But I do think that type of performance last night is a reminder of the upside of Brock Besser and the type of player he can be because it wasn't just the finish on the goal. It was the ability to set up Travis Dermott, right? It was a lot of the work he did possessing the puck, making smart plays, demonstrating his hockey IQ, all of those things. And then you add the fact that, again, I thought he had a little bit more jump in his step. Well, that's a really, really valuable player, a really effective player all of a sudden. And it doesn't make him, you know, worth the qualifying offer necessarily, but if that's the guy, if you have any sort of confidence that you're going to be getting that player on a consistent basis, it does change the calculus for how you approach the Brock Besser decision in the offseason. My favorite Besser moment was late in the game. He's out there with Yuho Lamico and Sheldon Dries, and he was like a magnet for the puck. He was just, and that line created, that trio created two scoring chances on this shift, and it was Besser just driving everything as a playmaker. I don't know that we appreciate his hockey IQ enough. I think he's capable of driving a secondary or a third uh, scoring line, even though the Canucks haven't generally had enough right wing depth to to play him anywhere but against Tufts with, with whomever's playing Tufts that night. Um, but I think he can. I think he could be a really well suited to being, you know, a power play specialist, second line guy. And yeah, that's not a seven point five million dollar player, but it's a six million dollar player without question. Uh, navigating his qualifying offer, protecting this club's interests, betting on Brock Besser to me, it's a no brainer. And I'd watch for him to have a really big night tomorrow. Uh, he's in Minnesota. We all know that that matters, but I think it matters a little bit more uh, to Besser and his family right now. So for him tomorrow in Minnesota, watch for that. I bet you he is going to have a big night for a Canucks team that sorely needs it. It's a good prediction. I like it. You're hanging your hat on it. It's, uh, as you said, always a meaningful game for Brock Besser. And I'll, the always, way... I'll always bet on a very good player like Brock yeah. Besser. And the way, he's, the way he is playing right now and even in the loss last night, instrumental in the Canucks at least picking up a point. We'll see if he can continue it uh, tomorrow against the Minnesota Wild. Uh, just a quick schedule update for us. We're going to be playing the Blue Jays game here on Sportsnet 650 tomorrow, so that will take us out of our normal time slot. But don't worry. We will still be on just a little bit later, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, to get you set up for that game between the Canucks and the Minnesota Wild on the on the road in Minnesota. Thanks for listening. Thanks for texting in. The People's Show is up next. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.